Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. It's also a little intimidating, but, uh, you know, it's just something that we have to deal with. Um, I'm also going to be trying to uh, run a PowerPoint as I go through this, so if this just gets messed up, just stop watching the PowerPoint, just listen to me. So we'll just, we'll just go that way, but... Uh, I recently have participated in two events that have really emphasized the amazing beauty uh, of cultural diversity that we find in the church and also the challenges of cultural diversity that we have in the church. The first was this, uh, not her, uh, first was the uh, attending the World Methodist Conference. Now, I'd never attended one of these before but I was giving a, a, doing a workshop, and this was such an amazing experience for me to be around brothers and sisters from all over the world. And, uh, and, and this picture of this uh, woman, you can't see the gown quite as clearly as I would like, but there were people walking around all the time there, particularly our African brothers and sisters wearing just such colorful clothing. I remember being in elevators with, with them and just, you couldn't help but just start talking to them. You know what I mean? It was just incredible. And it was just a reminder of, of that beauty of the cultural diversity that we find in the body of Christ. It was such a wonderful experience. The second event I'm just coming back from, it was just this last weekend, and it was the Evangelical Missiological Society's annual meeting in Dallas, Texas. And I happened to be asked to participate in a special track that they had that was dealing with the issue of Black Lives Matter. And as I participated in that track and as I listened to brothers and sisters in that track, it really struck me uh, about the challenges that we have in the church today when it comes to cultural diversity. So there's great beauty, but there's also great challenge that we find in that as well. So a few weeks ago, last month, Dr. Cleveland was here and she spoke on these topics of cultural diversity and racism uh, from a social psychological perspective. And then we had our own Dr. Keener who spoke on this from a biblical perspective. And so what I wanna do today is to talk about it. I'm a Christian anthropologist. And so I wanna talk about this as it relates to anthropology. And what I'm gonna focus on are three main uh, uh, concepts within anthropology, uh, culture, uh, where are they we here? Yeah, culture, ethnocentrism, and cultural relativism. And those of you who have taken my anthropology courses know these are real basic concepts within anthropology. But I think they can help us also to understand how we can, how we can move forward in this area of, particularly in the area of some of the tensions that we have when it comes to this, the challenges that we have when it comes to this diversity. Let me give you two little caveats before I get into this. Uh, first of all, I'm gonna be focusing, like Dr. Cleveland and Dr. Uh, Keener, on the United States primarily, because that's where I'm from. So I know that context the best, though the things I'll be talking about are things that can apply to virtually any uh, society, any culture, in any parts of the world. The second is that I'm gonna be looking at this from an anthropological perspective, but these anthropological concepts have very deep theological foundations. And I'll get to some of this kind of towards the end of the presentation. 
But let me start by talking about culture. There are different ways of thinking about culture, but one of the ones that I like comes from an anthropologist named Clifford Gertz. You cannot see this really at all, uh, but it's, if you could, it would be really neat because it's a spider web. And what Gertz says is that cult, we as, as human beings are suspended in webs of significance that we ourselves have spun, right? That we are, we are suspended in these, these webs of meaning, and that's how we live our lives. These, these webs are what give meaning to our life that allow us to understand the world around us. And he goes on to say that therefore anthropology should not be a, a, an empirical uh, or an experimental science in search of law, but an interpretive one in search of meaning. Right? Really trying to get at the meaning that people give to the world around them. And then a second way of looking at this kind of tied into it comes from James Spradley and he says, that we use culture to interpret experience and generate social behavior. So this is the other thing, is that culture is not just something out there that we can look at. Culture is something that we're using all the time, all the time, all the time to give, to help us interpret what it is we're experiencing and then to create social behavior. So just a simple example, when you guys came in this room today, you used your cultural understandings of things in order to interpret where you were and then to generate the proper social behavior, right? I see no one sitting on, the, uh, standing on their heads or anything like that. You're all sitting nice, nicely in the pews, looking forward, uh, soaking up everything I have to say as the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. So, uh, and the thing is that we learn, our, we learn our cultural meanings like we learn our first language. We learn it because we're brought up in a particular community at a particular time and place, and we just take on the values and the meanings that our culture gives to us, right? So it's a very natural process, um, and it's, it's something that we, we just do you know, really quite naturally. Now, obviously, you know, when we travel abroad, we, we are ready to anticipate cultural difference, right? We know that when we go to other places, we're gonna find people that do things in very, very different ways. So I was in India for the first time this past summer, or past January, and teaching. And I tell you what, that was one of the most amazing places I've been, right? Because everything I was seeing was new to me, right? So I had no doubt that I was in a completely different cultural context, that people were you know, when you're driving down the streets, and well, driving's maybe used loosely, but anyway, you're, you're going down these roads, crowded cars going in and out, in and out, and all of a sudden, there's a break, and it goes around because there's a cow standing in the middle of the road. You know something else is going on there, right? So when we study abroad or go abroad, we're kind of used to these kinds of things, but I think it's much less obvious that we have subcultures within our own societies that that have as strong a, a differences in meanings and understandings of things as we do, right? That is something that we so often sort of just kind of take uh, for granted. I'll just give you one simple example. In the 1990s, before many of you were born, uh, I, there was a guy named O.J. Simpson, and um, he was, uh, he was, he was under, you know, he was being tried for the murder of his ex-wife or estranged wife and some other uh, guy. And uh, 
one of the interesting things that was coming out at that time, particularly after the verdict, because he was found not guilty. Now, they had a bloody glove found in his backyard. They had blood found in his vehicle. You know, I mean, for, for the, the prosecution, they thought this is a slam dunk, right? This is going to be very easy. But uh, research that was done after the verdict found that the vast majority of whites thought that he was guilty and the vast majority of blacks thought he was innocent. And so when I talked to my students, I was teaching at an undergraduate institution at the time, when I talked to my students about this, they just wanted to kind of simply attribute this to race, right? O.J. Simpson was black, so black people supported O.J. Simpson. Uh, whites didn't support him because he was black, right? But what they really failed to understand, the, big, the biggest defense that O.J. Simpson's uh, attorneys were offering was that the evidence was planted by the police. The glove was planted in his backyard. The blood was planted in his vehicle, right? Now, again, as a white guy, I'm thinking that is ridiculous because police don't do that, right? But so many African Americans in this country come from communities where their understanding and experience with the police is so different. This is a post from a, actually a family member of mine. It's a picture of Willy Wonka. I have no idea why it's Willy Wonka. And it says, you're being treated poorly by the police? Have you tried not breaking the law to see if that helps, right? This is my world. This is my understanding of how police works, right? I've been pulled over twice in my life for speeding, and they even let me go one time. So what, they, what the students kind of failed to see was that these subcultures in our society have very, very different experiences, right? And we need to try to understand them just as much as we need to understand Indians if we go to India. So we have to also remember that subcultures were important during the New Testament time. Do you know, can you think of maybe an important subculture? Yeah, that was wrong. Uh, yeah, the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans were an important subculture that we see over and over again coming up in Scripture. And these were people that, that came to be seen as a separate people from the Jews, as a separate ethnic group, and, and they were really sort of despised by the Jews. So you, again, I'm gonna stop using PowerPoints when I come here, but anyway, uh, this is a picture of the good, what we call the Good Samaritan, right? The story that Jesus tells, when the, when the teacher of the law comes and asks him, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. And it was really interesting so, and, and so he's really being subversive here, right? He's taking this guy that, that all of his listeners would have hated, and he said, this guy was the one who showed compassion. This one was the one who showed mercy. This one was the neighbor, the despised ethnic other, right? A couple of, a few weeks ago when Dr. Keener was doing an, one of these evening presentations, he said something very interesting. He said, it's in a direct quote, but this is what I remember, that the expert in the law could not even bring himself to use the word Samaritan, right? So that when Jesus says to him, which of these do you think was a, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man says, the one who had mercy on him, right? He couldn't even say Samaritan 
So this is what cultures do. Cultures categorize the world for us, maybe. Yeah, cultures categorize the world for us, including the social world. And so we, we look out on social reality, we look out on, out on these different groups of people and we categorize them into different races, different ethnic groups, and then we act towards them the way that we categorize them, the meanings that we give to those, to those categories. Um, and so this gets us to the next issue I want to talk about, which is ethnocentrism. And this is, uh, this is actually uh, Professor Subner, who was one of the ones who first coined the term ethnocentrism. And I'll just read part of this. He says, ethnocentrism is the view of things in which one's own group is the center of everything and all others are scaled and rated with reference to it. Right? And this is our natural state. We're, nat we're naturally ethnocentric. We're brought up in these cultures and of course we take on the values and the practices and things and we think, well, this is just normal. This is just the way the world is. And so ethnocentrism is one of those things that we have to really unlearn. Um, another aspect of ethnocentrism is what we call naive realism. And naive realism basically is the idea that uh, people, the way that I see the world is the way the world is, and that other people, particularly those in my own society, also see the world that way. And if they don't, then it's their fault, right? Then they're doing something that's different about that. So, it, but it should be clear to us, just from the example I gave about the O.J. Simpson thing, that people do not have the same experiences, right? That these communities do not have the same experiences, and therefore they see the world, this, particularly the social world, in different ways. Um, there was a primetime program that came out in 1991 that was really interesting, and it was, it, it, it had a, a white guy and it had an African-American guy. They're both here, you can't see either one of them. But believe me, one is white and one is black. And they're dressed the same, they're wearing suits, they're everything. And what they did was, they followed them around and they, so they went to, you know, an apartment was for rent. The white guy goes to check into the apartment, he's shown around, if he wants it, he's got it, right? The black guy shows up a little later and they don't have any apartments for rent, right? There's just none available. Uh, there's a job opening. The white guy goes in, he's given an application, very friendly, welcoming. Black guy goes in, we don't have a job opening, right? Uh, they go into a store, you know how these go, right? This, and it was such an interesting program. It's on YouTube, you uh, might wanna take a look at it if you get a chance. But it's this over and over and over again, of these differences simply because one person is white and one person is black. And this is what I call the, the daily indignities of life, that people from these other communities, that African Americans and other minority communities and people have to face every single day when they're here. And if we wanna say, well this was in 1991 and things have really changed a lot since then, well two things. One, recent studies show that's just not true. When studies have been done doing this again, they find the same kinds of things happening. And more personal to us, this happened to one of our own students just a few weeks ago. And I asked him permission to talk about this. Uh, it's Ken Russell. 
Ken went with a, uh, a, a white guy. I, I didn't ask the white guy if I could use his name. Some, he's just going to be the white guy. And, uh, <laughs> and they went to pick up Dr. Cleveland at the airport. And they waited at, for her to, to arrive. Everybody got off the plane. Dr. Cleveland wasn't on the plane. So Ken goes up to the woman walk, uh, working behind the counter at the airline, a white woman, and says, look, I know that you can't tell me who's on what flights, but we were waiting for this woman, and she's not on this flight. And, you know, can you tell me, should we just, can we, should we just wait around, right? I mean, can you let us at least know that? And she said to him, no, I can't let you know that. I can't let you know anything about people that are on any of our flights. So Ken goes back, and he's talking with the white guy, and um, tells him this. And as they're sitting in a while, he, goes, he says, why don't you go up and talk to the woman and see what happens to the, to the white fellow? And so he goes up to her, and he says essentially the exact same thing to her. I know you can't tell me we're waiting for this person. They weren't on this flight. Uh, you know, should we wait around? I mean, is there... And she said, well, I, you're right. I can't tell you who's going to be on the flight. But she said, I would say if you waited around, you would probably see her, be able to meet up with her. So he goes back and he tells Ken this. And then they were waiting. There were two flights coming in. One was a half an hour later, and one was like two and a half hours later. So they were just trying to decide, well, should we go to dinner, right? So Ken says to this guy again, he goes, go up and talk to this woman and see if she can let you. So again, he goes up, I know you can't tell me. We're trying to figure out whether we can go to dinner. In other words, is she on the flight coming in a half hour or two and a half hours, right? And she goes, you're right, I can't tell you. But I would say if you went to dinner and got back, you would probably be able to meet her, right? This kind of thing. Now, we might look at that and think, oh, that's, you know, that's, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is that this is what people of color in the United States experience all the time, right? All the time. And these are these daily indignities that, that we have that we have to deal with. Um, and so for, for me, as a white male, one of the great things for me is I can go through every single day and I never have to think about race and I never have to think about gender, right? Because I'm the default mode. Uh, whereas people in these other communities are constantly reminded that they are different. They're constantly reminded that they belong to these communities and so on. Um, let me jump to cultural relativism, the third point. Now, I know a lot of Christians get nervous when they hear the R word, right? Relativism, hey, uh, good, you know. Well, cultural relativism is not the same as moral relativism or ethical relativism. Cultural relativism ultimately means that we want to try to understand other cultures on their own terms, right? Instead of, instead of taking our own meanings and things as going in and trying to understand them, we want to go in and really understand them on their own terms. How do they give meaning to the world around them? What are their experiences like? And really listen uh, very closely to them. Um, this, in, in our case, this primarily falls to the dominant group, right? me and people like me, right? The, the white Americans. Because, like, as Dr. Keener pointed out a few weeks ago, minor, people of minority populations in the United States, they've had to learn about our culture. They've had to learn about uh, the, the white dominant society. But if, that's typically not reciprocal, right? 
we typically don't necessarily have to learn about theirs. And so I think when we think about trying to really understand others, it's really incumbent upon us to be the ones to take initiative with this. So how do we do this? Um, I would say I'm an educator, so I believe in education, and I've seen this work out uh, in, in wonderful ways. Uh, I taught a course down in Orlando called Christian Ministry in a Multicultural Society. It was taught with, but to almost all white males who were going to be going into ministry. I, so I went down for these intensive weekends. The first weekend I went down there after they'd been reading some things for like a month, I went down to teach. And the basic response I got from the, the white males was, why are we studying this? This is no longer a problem, right? And the only thing that came out for me that was good that weekend was there were a few minority students in that class and almost every one of them came up to me afterwards and said, thank you for letting our voice be heard. And I thought, you know, if nothing else happened in this class, at least that happened, right? So then I came back and we were up here for another month and during this month then these students started reading about African American, African American experiences, started reading about Latinos in the United States, started reading about Asian Americans. And so when I went down the next month, and to be honest, I was a little nervous about this, that attitude had completely changed. And people, the, the students were no longer saying, why are we studying this? They were saying, I never knew this, and what do we do about it, right? A completely different attitude. So I've seen education, I've seen what education can do to really move people along in these areas. But, the other thing is personal experience, and this is something that's really important, right? We need to interact with brothers and sisters from these different communities. We need to have face-to-face -face interactions with them. We need to learn from each other in this way. And this is a very Wesleyan thing, right? So, again, you're not gonna read this, so I'll read it to you. But our own Dr. Pohl has written about this with Wesley. She says, Wesley discovered that significant change occurred at the level of sustained interpersonal relationships where attitudes and behaviors could be challenged, status boundaries could be addressed and transcended, and people could understand and enter each other's worlds. At this level, formerly voiceless persons could learn to speak and socially blind persons could learn to see and feel. We can be transformed through these experiences, right? And this is, is this not what we are about as the body of Christ? We are about, we are the transformation people, right? And this is what comes out of these kinds of encounters. So, to conclude, I'll put something else up here you can't read. Uh, um, because we live in the United States, we still live largely in these segregated communities and unfortunately segregated churches. We tend to have limited contact with, with those who are different, culturally different from us, and therefore we continue to view them through our well-developed cult cultural lenses. And this is true for the church as much as it is for the society at, as, at large. So we need to take this cultural relativistic perspective, or maybe another word we could use is humble perspective, and really, really try to learn uh, from our brothers and sisters. This goes back to the scripture that we had uh, for today. If we look at this with Paul, he says, love must be genuine. It must be mutual, devoted, honoring others as, more, as better than ourselves, right? And, and when I talk to African Americans and other minorities in the church, this is what they say. 
They want to see genuine love, right? Love that sacrifices, love that listens, love that wants to learn, right? This kind of thing. We have this student panel. I know, I've got to finish here. We have this student panel uh, at, uh, last month, and, and when people were asking them, what, what really, with the African-American students, they say, what really can we do? And what they kept saying was, we want people to listen to our stories. We just really want them to listen to us, right? And, that's, and I think that that's a really important thing. So let me, let me just end with this. I, I, uh, I've been talking about the challenges that we face with cultural diversity uh, in our society and in all societies. Uh, but I want to end by going back to the World Methodist Conference because the first night of worship, I remember just looking around and thinking, being reminded of this really famous, well-known passage in uh, Revelation 7, right? And so I want to finish by reading this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen.